on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. Christianity is a historic religion, and something of the history of the Christian faith, as it's embodied in the evangelical movement, I think needs to be retrieved. If one does that, then I think one sees that contemporary ways of looking at evangelicalism as though it's a subsector of the Republican Party are misconceived, but that that is just a blip, and blips are temporary. So I think that needs to be insisted on and frequently stated. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project Podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day, and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. Some would argue that the term evangelical is no longer useful and should be abandoned because of the ways in which it has been politicized in recent years. But David Bevington makes the alternative case that we owe it to fellow Christians around the globe to retrieve the term. He suggests that the way in which the label evangelical has been closely identified with partisan politics in America is nothing more than a blip, and blips are temporary. If we maintain a long-term and global perspective, there's no reason to abandon the word. Instead, we need to reclaim this label and the movement it represents from those who have distorted it. David Bevington spent decades teaching at the University of Stirling in Scotland, beginning in 1976, and more recently has served as a distinguished visiting professor of history at Baylor University. Together with Mark Knoll and George Marsden, David Bevington has provided compelling reasons for why evangelical Christianity must be taken seriously, even by the most skeptical of scholars, as a global religious movement that shows no signs of stopping. In this episode, we discuss the work of retrieval and reform, and the necessity of engaging the world around us with humility, courage, and love. If anything, what troubles David today is the lack of backbone among evangelical leaders. So let's, let's take a turn then to the contemporary scene where we are now. I believe that uh, the, the other issue that we're contending with is the ways in which the church, the broader church, has been politicized. So how do you account for that? And has something similar happened in the United Kingdom? Or is this a uniquely American phenomenon, the way in which uh, the, the political divides of the broader society have seeped into our churches? There are always going to be tensions between church and state. Uh, this was true in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's true today in the United Kingdom. So there is a tension in our own day, and th those tensions exist in all societies and always will. However, I think it is true that the politicization of religion has gone to a remarkable extent in contemporary America, which of course is paradoxical because the separation of church and state is one of the foundation axioms of the whole polity. But that is the reality. How has that come about? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to the fundamentalists. In the fundamentalist controversies of the 1920s and 30s, fundamentalists said that 
it is a mistake for the church to be involved in politics. We must just preach the gospel. But then in the 1970s, quite a number of them, and most obviously Jerry Falwell, began to think, well, there are other ways of promoting Christian values than simply by preaching the gospel. We live in a free society. Why don't we mobilize in politics? And so he did. Hence the moral majority, which was a major force in 1979 and on into the 80s. And that moral majority carried the fundamentalist, very strong conviction into the heart of politics and clearly led to an alignment with the Republican Party. Over the next two decades, a lot of people who were brought up through moral majority and similar movements in the 80s moved towards the centre of the Republican Party and identified, therefore, with one of the two major parties in the American political system and remained so and were able to draw on a lot of support, not least by mobilising evangelicals against abortion which became a major evangelical concern in the 1980s, as it had not been in the early 1970s, being a specifically Catholic concern before that. So the degree of integration of significant evangelical figures within the Republican Party made for that close annexing of religion to politics, which pollsters began to observe. I don't think the pollsters are without blame here, because... The pollsters began to use evangelicals as a political term. Now, patently it isn't, as we have said, but that's how it began to be used. And I think there are all sorts of problems arising from that. Um, To use evangelicals of people who are religious and Protestant and Republican doesn't necessarily go to their root convictions. So it may not be an accurate representation of who evangelicals are at all. And also, the term as used by pollsters is always restricted to white evangelicals. And in fact, black evangelicals are just as much evangelicals as white evangelicals, and indeed as brown evangelicals too these days. Black churches that I have visited myself, and I've been to quite a lot, They're very tolerant in welcoming me, I must say, but when I go, I am struck by how uniformly and confidently evangelical they are. They even have a statement of faith on the wall in many of them. Now, that is entirely obscured by the categories used by pollsters, and it leads to the sense that white evangelicals are a form of... um, militant cohort supporting the Republican Party, and even, usually, uh, a more right-wing strand of of the Republican Party, and often in the recent past supporters of a particular president rather than anybody else. That seems to me to be an identification which does fall under the condemnation of Billy Graham's statement, that that is identifying a particular strand of religion, which happens to be one that I, I believe to be valid and true, with a particular form of political organisation, which is transient. So it's a marrying of the transient with the eternal, and that is a very bad thing. (laughs) Oh, yes, you want the contrast with Britain. There is a contrast with Britain. Um, In Britain, there is an expectation that evangelicals will not be united politically. There is a very strong element in Britain which uh, supports the Labour Party, 
there is a strong tradition which goes back to evangelical nonconformity in the 19th century of supporting the Liberal Democrats, and there is a strong tradition which supports the Conservative Party. The three main parties of state are not entirely equally supported, but I think from time to time have roughly been equally supported in the last half century, say. And of course, in the last 25 years, they've been support, there have been other alternatives too. One can support Clyde Cymru, the Welsh Nationalist Party, or the Scottish National Party, and lots of Christians of evangelical convictions we found in them too. So there is not the um, alignment with a particular political party that now, that, that is true now, wasn't true in the past, there isn't the alignment with the political party you have in contemporary America, although that clearly is not uniform, it's just a vast majority, it's what, 82% roughly of uh, evangelicals are supposed to have supported President Trump at his first election. Um, there is a, a definite contrast there which leads to particular problems in the United States. So together with Mark Knoll and George Marsden, you edited a book entitled Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be, which was published in 2019. I think in part what precipitated the attempt to assemble these various essays was the fact that pundits and pollsters commented excessively on the overwhelming support that Trump received from white evangelicals. They said that he received 81% of the vote of white evangelicals. Uh, so to what extent was, was the book that you edited uh, a response to that? Uh, and how do you account for the fact that there is this assumption in America that if you are a conservative Christian, you will be a Republican, but that is not the case in the United Kingdom. What, what, why, why did things develop so differently uh, between our two countries? You are correct in identifying the genesis of that book. It was our concern that pollsters were getting it wrong, not least by saying that evangelicals can be regarded as a political faction. There are, however, other concerns that underlie it. Um, the book was also conceived as being a blow against the misrepresentation of history, and we are all, of course, historians who are concerned for a right perspective on history, by which I mean a legitimate perspective on history. And we were concerned that <coughs> history was being identified, was being so told that the um, that upholders of the, the underlying principles of the American state, the United States Constitution, must necessarily be both uh, evangelical and, and uh, republican. And that is not my reading of history, and it wasn't Marx's, it wasn't George's. In particular, the notion that um, the United States should be seen as a Christian polity in its in its inception, what we were troubled by, and that underlies a lot of what is said. In my last chapter to the book, I actually stress the diversity of the British relationship between religion and politics in order to make the point that we've just made. I think it is extremely important to see that a particular Christian stance which reflects the scriptures 
does not necessarily lead to a particular political stance. I have again and again been struck by the assumption that when you use the word conservative or liberal in America, you mean both politics and religion. You just can't do that in, in, in Britain. And I, I think it would be true to say you can't do that in many other countries. But that is standard usage in contemporary America. So what I would want to stress is the noble tradition within evangelical circles over the centuries of actually being committed to reform, reform in all its senses. I suppose the great greatest names are William Wilberforce and Lord Shaftesbury, Wilberforce, the great emancipator, well, the, the person who led the campaign for the abolition of the slave trade and secured that in 1807, and Lord, Lord Shaftesbury, the leader of many social reform campaigns in the mid-19th century, promotion of education for the working people, for the limitation of hours for working men, for the inspection of lodging houses so that people who needed to go to a, get a bed overnight shouldn't be exploited, an enormous range of social reforms. And these two men were very strong evangelicals, and their reformist impulse was integrally associated with their Christian convictions. If you read about them, you have a very strong impression that the assumption that in contemporary America, conservative policy and religion necessarily go together is false. That's what I'd say. Well, and I think what's fascinating about what you said is that I suspect that most Americans would be surprised to hear that the terms conservative and liberal don't apply to both religion and politics in the United Kingdom. It, it's just so widely assumed that those must go together in the American context that people would be shocked to hear that that's not how things play out in, in Britain. Well, as we press towards a close here, I'd like to focus a little bit on where we go forward from here. One question that is uh, at the top of my mind is to what extent is evangelical still a useful term when describing the theological commitments of people? Because I think by and large in common parlance, evangelical has now come to mean simply a white person who considers themselves somewhat religious and who votes Republican. It has been so politicized that uh, it's unclear as to whether or not the term can be reclaimed. So I wondered what you think of that. Can the, can the term evangelical be reclaimed to the extent that it points to the theological and religious commitments of people, or has it been so politicized that it should be abandoned? And a related question would be, if those who formerly might have been known as evangelicals can no longer use the term because of the way in which it has been politicized, what should we call ourselves? And does it matter? Do we need a label, or should we just refer to ourselves as Christians, Protestant Christians, or Christians committed to the historic Christian faith? My basic axiom here is that the abuse of something doesn't rule out its use. Thus, the term evangelical, yes, is abused, supremely by pollsters, but in common parlance, and therefore, to some extent, in the popular mind. I think, however, that in the popular mind, there is a, a slight notion that people who are evangelical probably go to church and probably quite like 
listening to sermons, which they don't. And I think there's probably an inkling in the popular mind that evangelicalism really is a religious term. I think, therefore, the term should be retained or, more precisely, retrieved. I think there are two dimensions of the retrieval. One is an appeal to time, the other is an appeal to space. If one looks at evangelicalism in the way that we've been talking about it, which is the accurate way, broadly, to talk about it, one will see that it has an enormously long lineage. Christianity is a historic religion, and something of the history of the Christian faith, as it's embodied in the evangelical movement, I think needs to be retrieved. If one does that, then I think one sees that contemporary ways of looking at evangelicalism as though it's a subsector of the Republican Party are misconceived, but that that is just a blip, and blips are temporary. So I think that needs to be insisted on and frequently stated. The other method of retrieval is through appealing to space, i.e., Asking who in the contemporary world regards themselves as evangelicals? Well, people in America do, yes. People in Britain do, yes. The great majority of the contemporary world who regard themselves as evangelicals are actually in the global south. There are a very large number in many parts, almost every country in sub Saharan Africa, often forming such an overwhelming majority that they can actually turn their countries into Christian polities. Zambia, perhaps most obvious, has declared itself a Christian country. Well, that is a quite extraordinary phenomenon because a century ago it was it was marginal to the Christian world. Whether it's wise to do that is another matter, but nevertheless it has. But it's not just true of Africa. In Latin America, the Roman Catholic Church has weakened very significantly. Um, popular. Um, traditional spiritualities have weakened in many parts, not universally, and evangelicalism, usually in its Pentecostal or charismatic form, not, not entirely consistently by any means, has grown enormously in the past 50 years, even 20 years. So that in many countries, uh, a significant proportion of the worshippers on a Sunday are not Catholic, but Protestant evangelicals, often a third or more in many countries. Guatemala is the most, but there are other countries where that's true too. Now, if the center of gravity in global Christianity has moved from the old North Atlantic center to the south, one must take account of how they identify themselves. And how do they identify themselves? Well, the word that's used of Protestants of all types, including Pentecostals and Charismatics in Latin America, is Evangelico. We can't pronounce the G properly, but that is the word. That is the term that they use. Evangelical is the obvious translation. Now, if that is their self-identification, who are we to deny them the right to continue using that? And if we do, isn't that going to cause complications to their mission? Yes, it will. So if we look at the world globally, then I think we must see that we have a responsibility to that world to maintain the world, word evangelical. Now, we can use synonyms. Uh, we can use the word gospel, which obviously is the same word at root, uh, although a different linguistic background to it. And I'm very happy to use the word gospel. But gospel 
is not actually a noun referring to people. It's, it's something, it's not some people. So it's not an exact synonym, and I know of no other exact synonym. One or two phrases have been suggested, such as red-letter Christians. I find um, OTOs in the extreme, much as I respect the man who coined that phrase, first of all. No, I think the word evangelical is useful. It's useful in looking at the tradition, the movement over time. It's useful at looking at the contemporary situation of the world, over space, and therefore it should be retained, and therefore it's quite important, yes, it does matter, to insist on its value and to say that loudly and frequently. I hesitate to say in the pulpit because I don't normally occupy the pulpit, but I think it might be even worthwhile saying in the pulpit. certainly should be said in every podcast that is issued from responsible churches. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that. So, so yeah. <laughs> Let me make it even a little bit more pointed, which is to say uh, there's people like me who serve as pastors of churches. There's also many, many lay leaders who are active in their churches. Uh, what, what specific advice would you give to both pastors, leaders, committed Christians in terms of retrieving this great legacy of the evangelical movement and trying to present the truth of what that term signifies, as you've suggested, over, over time and space? Well, I would want to emphasize both of those dimensions. On time, the solution is to read history. People must buy lots of history books and actually not just keep them on their shelves, but read them. Now, the nice thing is that a lot of people do find that when they do that, they actually enjoy reading history, even people who haven't previously thought of reading history. If if it chimes in with their own experience, as evangelical history books do to people of evangelical conviction, when they discover that, oh, John Wesley was converted, I was like, what happened to me? Then they latch on to it and see what the ramifications of conversion in the past were and how that's continuous with today. So the advice I would definitely give is to buy lots and lots of history books, especially by Mark Knoll and George Martin. (laughs) (laughs) On the matter of space, if it is true as it is that evangelicals in the global south are professing the same gospel that we profess, then it would be very foolish of us not to suppose that we can learn from them. And we can. For example, in contemporary Britain, a church that was first founded in Nigeria in the 1950s called the Redeemed Christian Church of God is growing enormously. Its initial clientele was Nigerians in this country, of whom there are a large number. But it now makes no distinction between anybody who tries to evangelize, and it's extremely effective. We could learn from some of their methods. What do they do? Well, they do what some of the 18th century evangelicals do. They have all-night prayer sessions. Now, that is not customary in most conventional churches in contemporary Britain, but they do it, and it works. Of course, we pray, and the Lord answers, and people are converted and added to their churches. Well, I do think that we need to look at bodies like that. They very helpfully come to this country, but we can look at what churches do in other countries abroad. 
South Korean churches, which have strong links with America, for example, have some very uh, notable Christian practices which which nourish spirituality and make for effective evangelism. And they have the great merit, from your point of view, of being overwhelmingly Presbyterian. So why not look at what Presbyterians in South Korea do and copy not everything, because they too have problems about religion and politics. They too have problems relating to their culture and aspects of East Asian culture are not suited to contemporary North America, and nobody would suppose they are. So one should be critical about what one receives, but one should look for something to adopt from our fellow believers who share our evangelical convictions in our day. That would be my remedy number two. That's very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Perhaps a related question would be, we've talked about a lot of the fracturing and the splintering taking place within the broader church today. So what advice might you have for those who are committed to evangelical theological principles in order to help build bridges and bring unity as opposed to contributing to the the splintering of broader church? I do believe, as Billy Graham did, in evangelicals actually trying to cooperate as far as they possibly can with people who would not call themselves evangelicals. And indeed, in pointing out to some people who have not traditionally regarded themselves evangelicals, they really are, because they emphasize the four points that I've stressed. And that's true of quite a lot of Methodists still, I think. I think that's true in contemporary America. If you go into um, the state of Delaware, for example, or traditionally a Methodist stronghold, I think you'll find there are lots of evangelicals who don't call themselves evangelicals, they call themselves United Methodists. But nevertheless, evangelical, I think they are. And I think that the future prosperity of the church throughout the world, but especially in America, lies in, in that sort of bridge building, as you call it. I'm all for that. So hooray that you're thinking in those terms. One of the things that you mentioned at the very beginning was that, at least historically, there was less denunciation of fellow Christians in England because it's a small island compared to America, given the fact that it's such a massive half-continent. To what extent do you think that's still true in the present day? I know that in America, people are very prone to, to denouncing one another over their theological as well as political views. Do things play out differently in the United Kingdom, or uh, has social media in general exacerbated the problem of, of critique and denunciation? I am so remote in my experience from social media that I find it very hard to comment. I know that my daughter, who is much more into social media than I, uh, would find things that alarm her uh, in social media. <sighs> My sense from what I am aware of that surfaces in the media, by which I mean chiefly the daily newspaper and the television, that in Britain, in the churches, there is not enormous denunciation on any score. In fact, if anything, what troubles me is the lack of backbone in public pronouncements by evangelical Christians. I think evangelicals in this country tend to lean over backwards to be immolient, partly because of the legacy of John Stott, I suppose, but don't actually manage to articulate their convictions in a way that uh, their predecessors in the faith in many centuries would have done. 
So I, I suspect that our our problem is more being too nice rather than being too nasty. And you can be too nice. I think you should be nice, but I think you should be nice with uh, a ramrod up your back as well. One of the things that we've talked about is that uh, we need to engage the broader world around us with humility, courage, and love. It requires humility to embrace those who might hold a different view of the world than you do. And yet uh, it takes courage to stand up for the truth of the gospel, but to do so in love. Absolutely, absolutely. My favorite theologian, it's not a Presbyterian, I'm sorry, he's not a Baptist though, he's a Congregationalist, P.T. Forsyth. I don't think you've come across him much good. P.T. Forsyth was a superb theologian at the end of the 19th, start of the 20th century in England. He he began as quite a strong liberal, but he actually became more conservative over time, and his mature theology is extraordinarily potent. It is cross-centered. It is slightly weaker than it could be on the Bible and its formulation of what how reliable the text of the Bible is, but nevertheless, his whole preaching is suffused with biblical phrases and biblical imagery. He certainly preaches for conversion, and he's certainly very keen on activism. So he's an evangelical through and through, but at a particular juncture. Now, Forsyth is extraordinarily important, it seems to me, in giving you a way of being courageous in stating the truth and being humble in doing it. And the way in which he would formulate it in say, is saying that God, the God whom we worship, is holy love. And I find that extraordinarily helpful. God is love, so says uh, 1 John, and God is holy father, says the gospel of John, and indeed holiness being the essence of what God is, it seems to me, is implied in the principle that God is light also in 1 John. So if you take holiness and love as the core of the being of the Almighty, then in any sphere, the tension between holiness and love is going to be there. But what Christians are called upon to do is express holiness, that is abstention from wrong, and love, that is generosity in its totality, simultaneously, as far as they possibly can. And that, I think, should be the guidelines for the mission of the church in any generation with lots of different applications. I'm sorry, I'm entering in my lay preacher mold. This is, for me, so foundational as to be exceptionally important and to, should condition everything that we think about in the mission of the church. How do we express holiness and love simultaneously? How do we abstain from wrong and be holy? And how do we express love? Well, one of the ways in which we express love is by communicating the gospel. But we have to do that without any deviousness if we're going to do it in a holy way, for example. So that's my foundation principle. That's not historical, that's theological. Well, that's very well said. And I, I like it when you start preaching. That's good. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask you one final, one final question, no, David. Uh, the book you edited together is entitled Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be. So as you think about the future, what do you think evangelicals could become? The most obvious 
point to make is that what evangelicals will definitely become is a network of global Christians in which maturing and matured churches in many parts of the world all contribute to the common stock. And they will contribute not just techniques like all-night prayer meetings, they'll contribute intellectually too. And the extraordinary growth of evangelical universities in contemporary Africa is full of promise for the future. They will actually produce biblical commentaries, biblical theology, biblical missional work, which will be inspiring and is likely to eclipse anything that's produced in the Anglo-American narrow world in 50 years' time, if the eschaton is delayed. I, I think that that is, the groundwork has already been laid for that development. I think it will happen. And that being so, the future overall really is, is pretty hopeful. The sad thing is that in, as a byproduct of that, Christianity in Western Europe in particular is going to become very marginal. And as it were, the seat of the magisterium of the Christian faith will no longer be in our country, but will be somewhere in, in the vicinity of Lake Nyasa, I suspect. Now, America will not suffer as much because the Christian presence, the evangelical presence, is much stronger. Whereas the evangelical presence in Britain is under 2% of the population, with the US approaches 20%, doesn't it? And that's a huge difference. So we are trivial and marginal. You are central to the culture, to, to a remarkable extent, really. And I don't think American evangelicals necessarily realize that. So you won't be pushed out as much as we shall be. But actually, for you, having allies in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. There are parts of Asia where Christianity is flourishing, not just Hong Kong, but Mizoram, Nagaland, and northeast India are flourishing Christian politics. Um, these, these places will have a lot to tell us about how we do mission and how we think Christianly. And I think that's a prospect which to which young Christians nowadays can look forward with, uh, with hope. As I reflected on my conversation with David, I've been struck by the ways in which the relationship between Christianity and public life has played out very differently in modern Britain compared to America. At an earlier moment in our conversation, David suggested that one reason for this is geographical and the other is cultural. America is a massive half-continent, while Britain is a tiny offshore island. In addition to the cultural value placed on demonstrating restraint in one speech in Britain, it's much more difficult to denounce another person harshly if you're likely to run into them the following day. Close proximity to other people and more personal interaction provides a healthy check on our relationships and the way in which we engage in public. This, of course, goes a long way to describe one of the major problems with social media. It removes that healthy check. Perhaps Christians should imagine meeting someone tomorrow they're tempted to critique today before posting anything online. I suspect that many people also underappreciate the fact that evangelicals make up nearly 20% of the population in America compared to less than 2% in Britain. This suggests to me that British evangelicals are much more accustomed to operating as a cultural minority than many American evangelicals. For better or for worse, 
Evangelicals in America have more cultural influence than in Britain, but that influence must be used wisely so as not to undermine the Christian witness. As the demographics shift in this country, I suspect that American Christians could learn quite a bit from their British counterparts about how to bear witness to Jesus effectively from the margins rather than from the center of culture and to do so with holy love. Finally, I think most listeners will be surprised to hear that in Britain and other parts of the world, there's no expectation that evangelicals would have similar political views. In America, the words conservative and liberal are often used to describe a person's theological and political commitments simultaneously. We assume that if people describe themselves as conservative, that means they are conservative theologically and politically. Or if they describe themselves as liberal, that means they are liberal theologically and politically. It's striking to think that you can't make those kinds of assumptions in other parts of the world. That fact alone might cause us to stop and reflect on the relationship between Christianity and politics and whether we're trying to conflate the eternal with the transient. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.